Uh, several years ago, a book came out entitled Radical, written by a man by the name of David Platt. And in the book, David basically challenges American Christians specifically, letting them know that many of us are possibly guilty of, of using much of the riches in which God has given us uh, for our own selfish gain, rather than for the purpose of what God had intended. That he intended to bless us in order for us to be a blessing. To be able to take what we have and to be able to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world and to alleviate suffering throughout the world as well. And a couple of the points in the book that he makes I think were excellent. He said that it's important for us to know that we live in the richest nation, uh, not only in the world, but one of the richest nations in all of human history. We are so affluent in the United States that we've been able to, for the most part, eradicate uh, almost every common disease that really impacts the rest of the world's population. And at the same time, because of our wealth, created a whole new group of uh, physical problems and diseases like obesity and sugar diabetes, which is almost uh, unknown to the rest of the world. Really, the point of the book, as I see it, is this. He's calling Christians to leverage everything they are and everything they have for the purpose of propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be able to alleviate suffering in this world. Now, uh, I, I tell you that because I encourage many of you to be able to read that book, and many of you did. And I would say that for some, it had a radical impact on their lives. Uh, there were some that came to me afterwards and said, hey, I just want to meet with you. This, this book has really shaken me up. To be honest with you, I never really thought about people outside of the United States or really even outside of my own community. He goes, but I, I am now. I, I didn't really think of that. God wanted to use me and what I have to be able to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they go, so I, I was doing very little, praying very little, giving very little. And he goes, but I'm so overwhelmed by what I've read in this book, so convicted. Now I want to give it all away. I want to give my home away. I want to give my car away. I want to, I want to, I want to give everything in my... Everyone's looking like, yeah, I read the book. I, I wasn't thinking that. But uh, some actually were. And, and I was excited because I felt like this book was having an impact on them. It was stirring them and the way that they lived and how they should ultimately live. And I said, now, listen, I, I want to encourage you for a second. Before you go and sell everything you have, maybe that's what God is doing. He, he certainly wouldn't be the first time. We see him do it in the scriptures with the rich young ruler. And I said, but let me, let me just kind of caution you just for a little bit. If you're trying to give to be able to help uh, the suffering and poverty, to alleviate poverty throughout the world, I go, just make sure that you don't uh, create more poverty. If you give away your home and you give away your car, you're probably not going to be able to sustain a job. And if you can't sustain a job, then you are going to create poverty for yourself. So maybe, just maybe, the answer is not way over here are way over here, but maybe the truth is somewhere in between. Maybe not giving it all, but not giving nothing. Maybe God has another way for us. Now, the reason I give that illustration is simply this, that we as Christians uh, have a, a, a knack for going from one extreme to another. It's very easy for us to be able to sit there and go, no, this is what we're going to do. This is right. And you find out, whoa, that's way wrong. And instead of correcting to what is right and what is biblical, we go to yet another uh, erroneous uh, extreme on the completely other side. And now we're just wrong in the opposite direction. So it's kind of like dads. Dads, you overreact with everything. You're, you're one of your children uh, break an ankle you know, on a skateboard. And then now everything with wheels apart from your car has to be thrown out in the dumpster. No more wheels. 
for anybody because it's only going to uh, hurt you. And so uh, we have this tendency to be able to overreact. And apparently, uh, not only we as Christians do it, but even the f- Christians in the very first century, uh, the, the Galatians were over-exaggerating. They were over-correcting, if you will. So here's what Paul has been doing. Paul, for four chapters, has been telling them, hey guys, you are free from the law. You are no longer under the law. So the people looked at that and said, wait a minute, we're no longer under the law anymore, under the enslavement of the law to follow it and to obey it? No. And so now what they're doing is they're taking that and they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater and they're like, great, that means that we can live whatever way we want to. We don't have to be obedient to the law at all, the moral law that we're talking about. I could just live and let live. And so what Paul does is he calls them back. He encourages them not to to overcorrect to yet another severe error. And he calls them back and he does this by reminding them of once again that they were free from the law, but then giving that freedom, some qualifying truths that help us to more biblically navigate the truth of our freedom, of how it is that we are now free in Christ. I think it will make sense as we go. Just two things this morning. Uh, number one, uh, number one, freedom from the law does not give us the freedom to disobey the law. Freedom from the law does not give us the freedom to disobey the law. Look at verse 13. He says, for you were called for freedom, brothers. Now, let me explain that. Uh, back in chapter 5 and verse 1, two weeks ago, uh, what we saw was, he said, the reason for Jesus Christ coming to this earth was to set you and I free. Isn't that a great thing? Set free from what? Set free specifically from the law as a means of our salvation. That is, that most people in their minds, they think the way to be accepted by God, the way to have eternal life, is I just need to obey God and obey him perfectly. And if I'm good enough and I can obey enough his law, then I'll be accepted by God. He says Christ came to to deliver you from that because you as I know that that's slavery. Because what happens is you and I are like, okay, I just need to be good enough. We try to be good enough. What do we do? We fail. We try to be good enough again, we fail. We pick ourselves up again, and we fail. It, it's a never-ending spiral of slavery, which sits there and says, I know I need to be good enough for God to accept me. I can't be good enough. He says, I came to set you free from that. How? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God comes, and Jesus comes, and he says, I'm not going to save you based on your work. I'm going to save you based on my work. If you will repent and believe in me and my death, burial, and resurrection, and go, that's how you have a right relationship with me. Because of what I've done for you, not for what you're trying to do for me. That's what God saved us from. And then he says, but because you were saved from that, now I'm saving you to something else. What is he saving us to? Freedom to follow, to love, and to live for Christ. If you and I are no longer constantly worried about and enslaved and trying to do what is right all the time and always wondering whether we're good enough or not good enough and in complete despair because when we do something wrong, now we're trying to figure out how can I make it up to God to get back into his good graces again. You take all that away and he gives you absolute security knowing that your salvation is of his and your continuing to be saved is of his. You're no longer working for your salvation. You know what you're doing now? You're living and enjoying a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ with the one who saved you. So that's what he says. He saved you from something in order to save you to something. But he understands that we are people that love to swing to extremes. So he knows that there's going to be somebody there in the congregation who is ultimately going to say, hey, that's great. We're free from that law. Man, I was trying to follow that law all of these years. I was stumbling like crazy. Now you've just given me a license to sin. 
to do whatever it is that I would want to do. And so he corrects that by making this statement, the very next line, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, the flesh that he's talking about is not the skin that's covering up your muscles and bones. The flesh that he's talking about is that remnant of sinfulness that remains in every true born-again believer. So when God saves somebody from their sin, okay, here's what happens. He regenerates them. He recreates them. They are a new creature in Christ. That means that he gives them a new nature. And with that new nature, he gives them a new heart that now desires God, which before they were born again, they didn't desire. They desire the things of God, and God places the Spirit of God inside of them to now to be empowered to do the very things that they want to do. That is to please and follow God. But even though we're created the new, we still struggle every day. Any hands? We struggle with sin every day. We're not pursuing it, but we struggle with it. Why? Because we still remain in these bodies. We still, have, we still deal with the sinful flesh. Every day we're trying to put it to death. Every day we're trying to die to the flesh and live by the Spirit. We'll talk about that uh, more next week. And, but this is, this is what we're trying to do. Paul here is not talking about struggling with sin. He's talking about pursuing sin. He says, don't, when I say that you're free from the law, don't use this as an opportunity for you to be able to sit back and say, hey, if I'm secure in Christ, if he's going to love me no matter what, if he's going to forgive me no matter what, then this gives me the right to be able to disobey because he's going to forgive me all the more. So I'm going to use this as an opportunity now to be able to indulge in the sinful lifestyle that I still desire to live in. And this is very dangerous view of, of, of thinking. In fact, uh, John actually, actually gives us a sobering warning about this kind of thinking coming from somebody who professes to know Christ. Uh, in, in his writing in the book of 1 John, he's writing to a group of people who say, I'm saved, I'm saved, but yet nothing in their life is demonstrating every, ev- any evidence that they've ever truly been born again. So here's what he says to them in 1 John 3, 6. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Now, that's a frightening verse unless we understand what it truly means. He's not suggesting that if you, if, if you sin the moment after you're saved that you're not truly born again. That can't possibly be. Or guess what? None of us would be saved. Amen? None of us would be. What he's talking about instead is a person that doesn't stumble into sin, doesn't fall into sin, doesn't struggle against it. He's not talking about that. He's talking about somebody who who's willfully and continually pursues in the same sin that they had committed before they came to faith in Christ, but now calls it liberty that they have in Jesus Christ. He says a person who does that, who takes the grace that has been shown them, the forgiveness that has shown them, in order to sin more, has never truly been born again. This is the type of person, and maybe you've heard this said. As a pastor, I've heard this more times than I ever want to be able to hear it. Something to this effect. I know what I am doing, what is wrong, but I know that God will ultimately forgive me. And they pursue and they continue to go on with it anyway. Do you get, you get that aspect? And, and so we hear this. Maybe, maybe you've even thought that. Okay, so I don't want to say if, you've ever, if these thoughts have ever crossed your mind, then you're truly not in the faith and you're not born again. Because I do think there's vulnerable times that we have, right? Where we're wrestling against sin, we're wrestling against temptation, and we don't want to do uh, what is wrong. But at the same time, we feel like we don't have any other choice. And yet we sit there and go, well, I, I know that God will forgive me if I do it. But you do it, and how do you respond? You, you sense the, the, holy, the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you're like, that wasn't the right way to go at all. I shouldn't have gone down that path and you repent and you come back to God. What he's talking about is specifically here, people who sit there and go, hey, guess what? I know that I am under grace. 
I'm no longer under law. I can do whatever it is that I want to because I know that God is gracious enough to ultimately forgive me. And as the scriptures say, this mentality does not exist in the heart and the mind of a true child of God. Uh, One author, Keller, says this. He says, anyone who insists that the gospel encourages us to sin has simply not understood it yet, nor begun to feel its power. Would you say amen to that? Amen to that. Now, I grew up, um, and I was what you call a good kid, right? If I wasn't so unattractive, uh, all the moms would want their daughters to marry me because I was a uh, good kid. And so uh, they, uh, I, and I wasn't good, I wasn't perfect, but I was kind of like a rule follower. Didn't want to do kind of things that were wrong. Lots of times my friends would come up and they'd go, hey, bro, let's go and toilet paper the principal's house. And I'm like, yeah, no, I can't do that, dude. Now, I wish I could say that it was the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't. It was really a healthy fear that I had of my dad. They would go, man, let's go toilet paper his house. And I would say, and I'd go, Dora, I can't do that. I'd do that. My dad's going to kill me if he ends up catching me. Now, let me be honest with you. I didn't actually think he would take my life. I didn't actually think that he would, he would disown me and I would no longer be his child. In fact, my dad was always very affirming of his continued love for me. Uh, independent of what I might do. In fact, usually when I did mess up, and there was plenty of times that I messed up, he would take me aside after I repented and asked for forgiveness and reconciled with him. He would say something like this, son, you do know that not, there's nothing that you can do would ever cause me not to love you. You, you know that there's no, no how far you run or whatever it is, there's no way that I'm going to disown you as a dad. I will always be your dad no matter what. And what did that do? It brought security back to me because I had failed him, yet he was bringing security again. Now, what's the appropriate response? What if I responded this way? After telling me that there's nothing I could do to lose his love, nothing I could do to fall out of being his son, what if I were to respond and say, really? Really? You mean nothing? You mean there's nothing I could do to you and against your law that's going to you not love me anymore and give me up as your son? That's great. Now I'm free to live in total disregard of you because now I enjoy all of the security that you've now granted to me. Would that be an appropriate way to respond? No. It's not the way that you respond at all. See, what kept me from doing many of the things that some of my friends were doing uh, was not the fact that I thought that my dad would literally kill me, even though I use that expression, nor because I thought that ultimately uh, uh, um, uh, that he would disown me. But what really kept me from doing those things was a fear of disappointing my father. And, and, and I didn't want to disappoint him. And, and that was the worst. Was it not? Is, isn't that the worst? It's like when your dad gets mad, you do something, you get caught, you know, and you're like, oh, he's going to get angry and he's going to yell at me. And he just comes in quietly. Maybe this doesn't happen with you and your father. Probably doesn't happen with me very often. Or they sit back and they go, hey, man, I'm not angry. I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to shout. I'm just so disappointed. And what you've done. And you're like, no! Not the disappointed thing! I'd rather you shout, I'd rather you yell at me, I'd rather you scream, throw something! But not the disappointment thing. Why, why does the disappointment matter? Because the truth of the matter is, is the reason that you don't want to disappoint someone is because you truly honor them and because you truly love them. And with my dad, I didn't want to do what was wrong because I, out of my love, I didn't want to disappoint. Let me make sure that we're very clear biblically and theologically here. There is truthfully nothing you can do as a child of God. If you are a true child of God in the faith, truly been born again, you would get that, right? True believer, 
that you could ever do that is going to lessen God's love for you, his affections for you, or ultimately is going to cause you to lose your sonship in Jesus Christ. However, it is very possible to do something that is displeasing to God. There, there, it is possible for you and I to grieve the Spirit of God. That is possible for us to do. So, so here's what it looks like. For a person who, who, who professes to know Christ, but they're truly not in the faith, what restrains them from doing what is wrong is one thing, is the threat of, of God's condemnation. They, they don't do what's wrong because they're afraid God's going to get them. I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to do it. God's going to judge me. I'm going I'm to get in trouble if I do this thing. But if they are convinced, if they come to a church like this, and they read a book like Galatians, and, and you say, hey man, God loves you no matter what. God cares for you. God's not gonna get, never going to give you up as a son or a child or a daughter, a child of God. He'll never give you up. You know what they'll do? They will take that as an opportunity to sin all the more because the only thing they were stra- was restraining them was the threat of condemnation. The whole book says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is removed. Now they feel free to sin. But for the true believer that reads a book like this, somebody who is in Christ, and they begin to read about the security that they have in Christ, and that there's nothing that he could do that God would take away their salvation, but he would continue to love and they would continue to be their son. When, when this book tells them that there's no condemnation for them who is in Christ Jesus, they don't have to worry about uh, God threatening them with eternal judgment. Do they return to sin? No, because their ultimate drive and their ultimate restraint is not the fear of God. It's their love for God. Their desire is not, hey, I need to do this for you to accept me. It's, I, I've ex- you've accepted me, and because of that, I love you with everything that I am, and I don't want to do what is displeasing to the God who has so lovingly saved me. Do you see the distinction? Now, if you don't like that point, I'm sorry, because you're going to hate the second point. All right, so uh, first things first. First point, freedom from the law does not give us the freedom to disobey the law. Are we good with that? Yeah, okay, good. All right, sounds real impressive. All right, uh, real convincing. Number two, freedom from the law does not give us freedom to disregard others. Does not give us freedom to disregard others. Now, after he tells the Galatians that they were not to use their freedom in an opportunity to sin, for opportunity to sin, in other words, don't do this, then he turns around and tells them something that they should do in light of the freedom that they have. And what does he say? But through love, serve one another. Don't lose your freedoms. Listen to this. Don't use your freedoms to sin against God. Use your love to care and serve those who are ultimately around you. Now, there's a negative way to be able to state this command. That's the positive way. Positive way, but through love, serve one another. Negative way, what he's telling us not to do would be this, would be, would be don't be selfish or don't love yourself as an act of selfishness for yourself. And uh, let, me, let me say it like this. Don't hold to your religious liberties at the detriment of other people. Here was going to be the problem. A lot of people, they suffered underneath this oppression of legalism, and they were raised up. Others pressed it on them. They pressed it on themselves. And when you finally get what grace is, it's a joyful time. 
When you're told all your life that you can't go to a movie theater or you can't uh, uh, play cards or you can't dance all your life or God's going to throw you headlong into hell, uh, then somebody sits there and goes, no, that's not the case. God neither accepts you nor, nor, nor rejects you based on those things. You're free to do those things as long as you don't ultimately sin against God with it. In other words, gin rummy or, 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 or some other card game might be good, but you're not going to go and take all of your money and spend it and waste your whole inheritance. That would be a sin, right? But when you first begin to catch that freedom, you begin to sit there and go, you mean I can play Old Maid? <laughs> yes, you can. You mean I can go see a, a movie, like a G movie? Y- yes, you can. You mean I can go to the hoedown at Mercy Hill and dance? Yeah, you, you're, you're able to do that. Man, that's fantastic. And so there's all this enjoyment in the Christian life. You understand that? There are all these things that you are free to be able to do in Christ because it's not your actions of what you're doing uh, that is the basis for your acceptance by God. You, you got that, right? And these things are not morally wrong or morally right. They're just morally neutral. There's nothing in and of them that are morally bad. And so you begin to enjoy that. He says, but what happens is sometimes people press it too far. They sit there and they take the, the freedom... And they just keep pushing, which results in either, point number one, either sinning against God or using the freedom that ends up sinning against a neighbor, against somebody else. Now, let me, let me explain how Paul explains this specifically. He gives us an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, it's kind of a weird thing. It's, it's, I mean, this is something all of us can relate to. Uh, it, he's dealing with, with food and meat that was sacrificed to idols. So all of us can really relate to that. And so here's what he does. Uh, he is talking, the issue that came up with the church, there were pagan folks that worshipped pagan gods, and, they, and part of their pagan practices in worship was to take animals and have them sacrificed in the temple. Well, before they left, they'd kind of barbecue that baby up, and they'd slap him on a bun and make it an idle hamburger, and they would sit there and eat on their way out and go, hey, this is pretty great. Worship and get a meal at the same time. Amen? Sounds pretty good. And so they would sit and they would eat. Well, some of them uh, begin to understand some of them had freedom in Christ. And what they did was they were like, man, I'm so glad that God delivered from that. I don't have to slave down there, go to that false thing. In fact, I don't even want to go to that false, that false temple and, and, and worship. He goes, but man, they got some good burgers. They just got some really good burgers down there. And I'm free in Christ. This burger is neither, neither uh, completely sinful or, or not sinful. It's just, you know, it's just morally neutral. So I'm not going to go to worship. But man, I'm going to go and get that burger because I just really, really, really like it. Now, that's one group of people. The other group of people that Paul deals with are the folks that came out of that as well. They were also born again out of that same idol worship, same pagan activity. They come out of it and they want nothing to do with any of it. They come out of it and they go, man, that's the way I used to worship false gods. God saved me from that. I don't want to go back into that place. I don't want to have anything to do with it. In fact, anything to have to do with any of that temple worship is, is, is evil. Even stopping off at the bar and eating that burger. If I stop off at that burger, that's sinful as well. So they're so overwhelmed by their conviction of sin and what they came out of. Now they're, they're putting that whole thing and stacking that up into sin. And so the question then is, is who's right? Is the guy who goes and gets the idol burger, is he okay? Or is it the guy who sits there and says, no, none of it is right. You can't even eat an idol burger. Well, Paul begins to explain it. And he begins to explain, he goes, first of all, you need to understand that they sacrifice these to false gods. But we all understand there is, there is no such thing as false gods. There's only one God. 
So they're really sacrificing it to nothing, to gods that are made up in their own mind. It's just burger that went on the grill, and even though they think it's to their god, it's not really their god. So really, inherently, there's nothing wrong with eating the burger. Eat away. It's not neutrally sinful or neutrally good for you or bad for you. It doesn't bring you closer to God or draw you closer for God. So you have a freedom in Christ to eat a burger. Amen? All right? Amen? All right, so that's a good thing. That's a glorious thing. You're okay. And then he sits back, but then he gives this little caveat, or more of kind of a, a warning. Now, listen closely to what he writes. He says, but, however, not all possess this knowledge. Do you know what he means by that? Now, every believer understands their freedom in Jesus Christ of what they can ultimately do. There are some of them who are still bound in to a little bit of that old legalism that makes them determine whether they're right before God or not based on practices that they do on a day-to-day basis. Are you following with me? And so he says some of them don't have that same knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as, 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 really, uh, eat food as really offered uh, to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So he says some of them might eat a burger because they're trying to be like you because they're free, but the truth of the matter is their whole conscience is, is searing them the whole time because they believe that this is ultimately sin. And he says, food will not com- com- commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. But take care. Take care that, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the work. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple uh, will he not be encouraged if he, he will not be encouraged if, he, if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, uh, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. If you didn't catch what he was saying, let me lay it out this way. He says, man, you have incredible freedom as a believer in Jesus Christ to do all kinds of things. But what is, and he tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but what might be, uh, what might be, uh, you have freedom to do, uh, what you're able to do may not always be profitable to do. And this is what he's saying. It is, not, it is not sinful for you, he says, to go into that place and to be able to eat that burger. However, your freedom can become sinful in the way that you ultimately use it. He goes, if you use it and you've got this weaker brother. Now, what he's talking about is the ones who are in there eating the burger are actually the ones who are spiritually correct. They understand that it's okay that they have the freedom to eat the burger. The ones that don't are the ones that are still struggling uh, oftentimes with this, this, maybe some legalism, but it might just be that they hated that life so much they don't want to have anything to do with it, and any thought of it brings up all kinds of negative thoughts and feelings and hurts and pains. So they just don't want anything to do with it. He goes, you're free to eat it, but if you have a brother and sister in Christ that's really struggling over that, uh, they, they, they know that you're going to it, and they view that as sin, and they don't even know what to do with that. He goes, you can use it in such a way that you're actually harming another person spiritually with your freedom. And he goes, and that to you is a sin. So let me try to clarify a couple things. I, I, think when, I think when I say this, hey, you have freedom, but you don't have freedom. I think everybody sits there and goes, man, we just got Jesus juke, didn't we? That's exactly how this Christian thing is. We, we got freedom to do whatever we want to, but then you turn around and tell us that we don't have freedom. Well, which one is it? Do we have freedom 
to eat, or we do, do we not have freedom to eat? Well, let me try to explain it like this way. I think we have a false conception of what freedom is. Uh, we live in the good old USA, amen? What's wrong with you people? I don't understand what's wrong. You guys are not, uh, you're not a responsive at all. Maybe, I don't know what's going on, but I haven't even said the stuff that's going to anger you yet, and you're not even responsive. So uh, we live in the good old US of A. We live in the freest nation in the world, amen? amen. We love it. I mean, it's free. Uh, I could do a whole lot of things that I want to do. If I want to today, if I want to get in my car and drive all the way around the country, all the way over to Oregon, nobody's going to stop me as long as I get permission from my wife. I, I, can, I can go wherever I want to. There's freedom, right? And so I, I could just go and do these things. And we've got all this freedom. But remember that freedom always comes with regulations and restrictions. I don't care what freedom it is. In fact, written within our Declaration of Independence is, is this, is that we as Americans have this certain unalienable rights, which include what? Life. Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Doesn't that sound good? The pursuit of happiness. You could, do, you could do whatever you want to be able to go to pursue happiness. That's your right. You have a freedom to do that. That is a great and awesome freedom. But you do not have the right to per- pursue the pursuit of happiness. Of the, the happiness that you're pursuing is going to cost somebody else something. In other words, some of you drove some really nice cars here this morning. I was watching. And I thought to myself, I could pursue some happiness right now if I just steal their car. And I just take it and it becomes mine. There are laws that are set up that say you are free to pursue happiness as long as it doesn't harm or impede the happiness and the well-being of somebody else. You understand that, right? And this is what we have. We have laws everywhere like this. You have a right to bear arms. Don't show it to me, okay? Uh, you have a right to bear arms. But the truth of the matter is, is, is you can't bear those arms as a negative effect and physical effect on somebody else. You, you, you can't do that. Uh, you have restrictions upon those laws. Here's what God has said. You have amazing liberty and freedom in Jesus Christ to not to have to do a bunch of things or not do a bunch of things a certain way, all to be approved by God. They're just neutral. You're not better off if you do. You're not better off if you don't. You have freedom, so you're not enslaved to that thinking, am I doing everything right before God? I'm right before God because of the completed work of Jesus Christ, amen? But then to be able to take that freedom, though, and say, but within that freedom, here's the restraint. The restraint is that you must do it in light of your love for God. And your love for your fellow man. In fact, he even says it there when he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Here's what would happen in the church. If in the church, everybody begins, if everybody's suffering, look, when you first come to faith in Christ, you've got a lot of growing to do. Amen? And then the more you grow, the more you realize how far away from God you are. You don't feel like you're any step closer except for to look back and know that you're not the man or woman that you used to be. But you feel like you've got a million years now to be able to go. Anybody ever feel like that? And so that's how you feel like your Christian walk is. The closer you get, the further away that you feel like you are to obtaining righteousness of Christ. And so you're, you're, you're working through that particular area, going in that particular direction. Uh, but the truth is, uh, people need some time. And so when new believers come to faith in Christ, they're going to have all these things go, man, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to do this. This is all sinful. They haven't understand the freedom that they have in Christ yet. 
And yet there's going to be some other churches that go, bro, we have complete freedom in Christ. And the person who came out from a really bad background, uh, taking part in certain perverse things that were not of God, and then all of a sudden they have a believer who sits there and says, yeah, bro, but we have this, and we could do this, but it's in moderation. We can't use it to sin, but we have freedom to be able to do some of these things. That individual is going to struggle immensely in growing in their faith. So uh, what does this ultimately look at? Well, let me, I got to give you some type of example. And uh, let me just think of something that's probably never brought up, probably not on the minds of people. Let's just choose the subject of, okay, drinking. And so um, uh, something that nobody is even thinking during the course of this uh, message, let's just talk about consuming alcoholic uh, beverages. And I could tell, uh, Spurgeon used to say that, um, that you could tell um, what, what dog got hit uh, but he says, you throw, a, you throw a stone into a pack of dogs, and the one that yelps is the one that got hit. Uh, so when, if I hear you yelp, I know which one got hit by what I'm about to say. So uh, this, by the way, is, is, is the reason why we're not going to have to build this new facility is sermons like this, because uh, we'll have people exiting out one after the other as soon as I get through the rest of this. But here's kind of what we have. There are very godly people in our church, very godly people in our church, that feel completely free to drink some wine or to drink a beer with their dinner. They feel no guilt or conviction from it. They've searched the scriptures. They see that alcohol was a part of what people did in the Old Testament, even in the New. They see some of this. They understand that drinking, uh, th- that drinking, it, it does not make them unacceptable to God. It doesn't make drink, drinking doesn't make them acceptable to God. They just know that it's morally neutral. So the alcohol that sits on a table is not of the devil. It's not sinful within itself. Here's the whole part about what you eat or what you drink. Can we at least agree with that? But what you do with that may very well be. So we, we, we get that as well. And so there are some folks, very godly people here, who, who ultimately um, it will sit there and go, hey man, I, I feel okay with this. And they will even be the first to tell you, but bro, you can't go anywhere close from junk, drunkenness. Drunkenness is not right. It's never right. You can't even get close to it. And so they're like, hey, man, I may drink a beer. I may have a glass of wine or I may do whatever. But, bro, there is no way you're going to catch me uh, getting drunk. That is completely abom- abomination of God. Has nothing to do with God. Has nothing to do with God's people. And so that's where they hold. Okay, now you've got a completely other group of people. Now, I already made some people mad by stating that. Now, let me make the other ones mad. Uh, the other would say this. However, some uh, who were brought up Uh, much even in the way that I did. So I'll admit this, that alcohol brought nothing good to the family. It brought divisiveness. It brought a divorce. It brought abuse. It brought all kinds of things, and that is what they know of alcohol within their life. They, they believe that there is no place. Now, this isn't me. I'm just telling you what other people believe. They believe that there is no place for alcohol in the life of a believer. And they really struggle with seeing Christians, uh, Christians drinking alcohol in any way. Or they come from, a, again, they come from a lifestyle of which they saw the abuse of it. Now, what do you do? You have one that feels freedom to do. You have the other one that does not feel freedom to do. But we are called to be a body, a family of Christ. So what do you do? When you show up together, uh, who's supposed to relent? The weaker brother? The weaker the brother is in no way to be able to relent. The weaker brother can't sit there and go, I've had a conviction of this all my life and I'm really struggling through it and I'm even struggling with alcohol right now. They can't come to you and go, hey, it's okay, I'm just going to be okay with it for the sake of freedom. They can't do it. The person of freedom, according to the text of Scripture, is the one who is supposed to come and say, hey, bro, 
it's something that is, I feel free to be able to do, but I don't want you to struggle with this. This isn't so important to me that I would, I, I would want your family to be ripped apart or you to lose your job or you to do any of those things. That would never ultimately be what I would want for you. This is, this is by the way, one of the reasons why we don't allow alcohol in any church functions or any small groups. I don't think that it's inherently evil, but I don't think that it's inherently wise to be able to get groups of people from different backgrounds together and to be able to sit there and say, let's fellowship around alcohol. It's why we have a rule against that. It's why we don't allow it to be able to do. And again, somebody would say, well, that's legalism. You don't know the definition of legalism. That's not what legalism means. We're not suggesting that you are, that you, the only way to be accepted by God or be loved by God is for you to keep from drinking an alcoholic beverage. We're not teaching that at all. What we're trying to teach is in a loving body of Christ where this is a sensitive issue for so many. And that's what I think people fail to understand. I just, for those that sit there and go, hey, we're going to use this and this is my freedom and I'm going to hold to it and you can't take it away from me. I want you to walk with me for a month. Walk with me as a pastor for one month and talk with all the people in this church that are struggling with alcoholism and the falling apart of their marriages. Just come and walk. And I'm not sitting back and going, hey, what you're doing is wrong. I'm not suggesting that at all. What I'm suggesting is you can do and and hold to your freedom in such a way that is not sensitive to those who are ultimately working. You can do it in a way that is, but you can do it in a way that it's not as well. So it's not legalism. Now, somebody would sit back, and here's what I think we need to learn, and I think this is, took me a little while to figure this out. There is a practicality to all this in the application. You need to, we need to understand that there's a difference between prudence and hypocrisy. You are not being a hypocrite if you exercise your liberty privately out of respect to the Christian community to where you live. In other words, if you have a freedom to be able to drink a beer or to drink wine or whatever it might be, see, I can tell everybody in the room hates me right now. They're just sitting there going, you're not making me happy. You're taking me off. You say it's okay. You're saying it's not okay. I'm trying. I'm not preaching in fear of you. I'm preaching in fear of a holy God to whom I will be accountable. And so here's what the word says. So what we understand is this, is there is a time for you to be able to have certain freedoms that you have in Christ that you do privately, that you don't boast about, that you don't Facebook about, that you don't let everybody know and just haphazardly go about. You don't do all of these things, whatever it is, that the way you do. You just sit there and go, hey, man, this is something that we do, something that my wife and I enjoy. Or, you know, I, I got a friend or two that we all come over, and this is a part of what we do, and this is, this is great. And, 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 and you sit there and say, well, you know what? The problem is that's hypocrisy. Again, you don't know what the word hypocrisy means. The word hypocrisy is knowing that something's wrong, stating that it's wrong, and doing it anyway. That's, this is not hypocrisy. Uh, this, th- this is not hypocrisy at all. Instead, it's prudence and discernment. It's to be able to sit there and care for other people and go, hey, look, I mean, I've got the right to be able to do this. I can't, look, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've done this in my life as a pastor. And I understand that there's a higher accountability for me than there is for you. I get it. But I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to get a sweet deal on an old used Lexus and I don't buy it. An old used Lexus. Because here's the thing. I can get one for like six grand. And it's beautiful. Right? And I could drive up here on the parking lot. And you know what I'm going to hear? Oh, there's the preacher with the Lexus. (laughs) He's driving the Lexus. 
I guess he doesn't care for the poor. And I'm sitting there in my own mind going, this doesn't even make any sense. Because I can literally buy this Lexus SUV for cheaper than I can buy the stupid Toyota. Right? For more, this one costs more than this one. But yet I'm stuck with more money. Why? Because I'm sitting there and go, there's a sensitivity against Lexus. Right? And so there's a part of that. You're sitting there going, and look, here's what's easy for me to do. I got a right to drive a Lexus. Right? And you could sit there and I could scream and I could do everything else. And, and the truth of the matter is, but that's not what's driving me. What's driving us is a love for one another. It's not about what is good for me. It's about what's good for you. What's going to help you? What's going to help you from keep from stumbling? Now, now somebody is going to sit back and they're going to say, and it's a great thing. Somebody's going to sit and say, well, Mike, every, people can say that about anything. And, and you know what? You're telling me as a pastor people could be offended about anything? I'm telling you people could be offended about anything. Anything. And so what do we do with everything? Do we just sit there? Here's what the natural response is. The natural response is to pull back, cling to our freedoms, and just use that as an excuse not to consider other people. They could say it about anything. Well, here's, here, and so, so how do we deal with all these issues? How do we deal with every single issue in the church like this? Well, the truth of the matter is it's messy. And it's not always as clear as it wants to be. And the Bible doesn't give us a list of 25 different ways we deal with every single one of these issues that might be hot topics. You know what it says? Love God and love each other. That's what you want to do. You want to take all the law? You want to obey God? Love each other. In fact, it's been said this way, that, that freedom is much like a locomotive. It has a potential for great and grand good, amazing good. And he goes, but it also has the potential for great disaster and harm if it's off the tracks. If it, as long as it remains on the tracks, it can do the wonderful things that it was designed to do. If it get off those tracks, it can cause unimaginable danger and damage. Well, guess what? Our freedom that we have in Christ is that locomotive. And the place for that locomotive is on the tracks. And the tracks is love for God and a love for each other. And somebody would sit back and they would say, well, what do we, what do, we do about this? What do we... What do we do? See, here's the thing. It's hard to be able to preach a message like this that doesn't sound like I'm for this or against this. I'm, I've tried to be as clear as I possibly can. That I don't want some of you to be able to be um, um, stuck in, in some kind of, um, some kind of uh, uh, pragmatism or legalism to where you think any one of these types of things and anybody who does them, in sin, I, I want you to be relieved of that. Uh, but on the other side, I, I want you to be so loving to each other that when you see a brother and sister in Christ and whatever it is, that you're more concerned for them than your own rights. Isn't this, by the way, uh, isn't this what marriage is about, by the way? You know what the, the biggest issue in marriages are? People not willing to let go of their freedoms and their rights. How many times I've heard, but I have the right. And I will tell them, as long as you cling to your rights, this marriage will never last. The whole point in a marriage, even, even wives that, to submit to their husbands, wives, what he's saying is, hey, you take all your rights and all your privileges and you lay them down at the feet of your husband and you entrust them to him. Husband, your responsibility is to die to self as Christ died for the church, which means you give up your rights and you look after the rights in a way that she never regrets the decision of laying them down to begin with. So this is what it looks like. So where do we get this? So this is not only in marriage. You understand that has to happen in marriage. Guess what? It has to happen with the body of Christ. 
And so where do we look at this? Uh, where do we get such an example or such an idea? Well, Philippians chapter 2 is probably the clearest indication of it. It says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though, through, though, though he was not in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do, do you see what he's saying? He had every right of God because he was God, but he didn't cling to the rights as God. He humbled himself. How? He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a what? Servant. Servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The example that we have for not living for ourselves, but the living for the care of this body and for others, and be able to sit there and go, at the same time, I've got freedom to be able to do this, but out of love, I lay these things down for the betterment and the well-being in order to serve my brother and sister in Christ. Amen? All because of Jesus Christ. Jesus was in heaven. He was God. He humbled himself. He, he, he chose to become a man. Why would you want to come to this pigsty if you're ruling and reigning in heaven forever? Not a service, an act of love. To die on a cross in order to save you and save me from our sin. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you. Lord, you are a good God and I have gone over. Thank you for the patience of our people. Thank you for the patience of our children's workers. But God, right now, as we respond to your word, God, break us, change us. God, help us to do what is right according to you. Let us rejoice in our freedoms, but yet let our freedoms be regulated by our love for you and our love for one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand. I'm gonna be down here. If you wanna know more about Jesus, who we talked about, I wanna invite you to come. I'd love to talk to you more about it. Uh, if you want to know about this salvation idea, maybe you've been hearing that. I want to talk to you more about that. If you want to pray about anything else, please come. But the altar is open at this point for us to respond. So you go.